book of Leviticus chapter 19. That's where we will be. Put your thumb or your finger there or a piece of paper or business card to mark your place. And we're going to be back to there very shortly. And then we're also going to be referencing 1 John chapter 4 to kind of go into um, Leviticus chapter 19. Now, um, of course, this is a Christmas um, time of year, the, the time that we set aside to celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ as he came as a baby into our, into our world to live, to live a perfect life in order to be the perfect substitute for each and every person who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. That is a wonderful time of year and it should definitely be celebrated. It's, a, it's an amazing point in history that uh, we can look back and see the promise that God was going to send a Savior, and this is where he fulfilled that promise. And that's what this season should truly, truly be about, is to um, look at the love that God has expressed towards his creation, towards man, the very crown of his creation. He became a man, and he dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's an amazing event that we celebrate during this time of Christmas. Now, what drove God to do such an amazing thing for such a lowly creation? It is his love for mankind. That it, it just poured out of his nature and the character of who God is, and he manifested that love and that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay that price for us. If we take a look in 1 John chapter 4, as we kind of lay the grounding foundation of what we're going to be talking about this morning. In 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another for the love of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. God is love. So what is love? Well, as God. It's kind of hard to describe, but it's actually the very character and the nature of who God is. God is love. As we see in verse 9, it says, in this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world. The love of God was manifested how? By sending Jesus Christ to our world. Now, actions without purpose usually tend to be meaningless. Would you agree? So what was the purpose that he sent his son? And to come into our world, as we continue to read in the very same verse, is that he sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Verse 10, in this is love. Now, John is giving a description here. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to, the, to be the propitiation for our sins. What an act of love towards us. If you really understand the magnitude of our sin and what we deserve because of our sinful behavior and sinning against an infinite, all-loving, caring, moral creator that we have, and the price that was paid on the cross, we can understand this truly amazing act of love that God has put before his creation. In verse 11, it says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God loved us in a, in a manner that brought about the action of sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, 
a people who was really unlovable, a people who had rejected him through our sinful behavior and rejected his ways and sinned against him over and over and over again, were unfaithful to him over and over again. If God can express a love towards someone like that in me, then why would I not in turn love my neighbor and love one another? See, God has given us an example of love that is almost impossible to comprehend with our finite mind, an infinite love being poured out to a finite man in Jesus Christ when he died on the cross for our sins. And if God can love that way, if God can sit and love sinners, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, not that he died for someone good, but he died for someone who was bad, someone who had sinned against him. He exercised still an infinite love towards that person, towards all mankind who were willing to trust in, in, uh, trust in the name of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to tell us, Beloved, if God so loved us in the way that he is speaking here, we also ought to love one another. So whenever we look at this extremely um, gracious gift of love during this time of year, whenever Jesus Christ came to be a man and that he might die, and that he would die for our sins. And then we are, we are encouraged to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus, when he was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said, love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like unto it, do what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments, the entire commandments of God hang. So pretty much, love God and love your neighbor is God's commands is kind of wrapped up in one general statement. Love God and love people. But if you're loving God, what's naturally going to happen? You're going to love people. That's why it's the first and greatest. Love God, and actually pretty much everything falls into place and falls into order. Because if you truly love God, then you'll obey, be obedient to Him. And in obeying God, you will love your neighbor. Now, there's, there's obviously lots of varying details on how to love your neighbor. I think it's very important that we do love our neighbor. And then, especially during this time, we, we have the knowledge of the greatest gift that we could possibly imagine in Jesus Christ. And we celebrate when he came to this world. And I think that the best thing that we could possibly do is do what Christ has instructed us to do, to love our neighbor as ourself. In that example that we celebrate. Now, but how do we love our neighbor? That's a good question. How can we love our neighbor? That's what we're going to be trying to answer this morning. So how can I love my neighbor? Well, the first thing we need to understand is, well, who is my neighbor, right? You need to know who your neighbor is in order to love them. And we, and we in our class on Wednesday nights, we, kind of, we, we did a lesson on you know, serving our neighbor and who our neighbor is. Our neighbor is, in a general sense, everybody but yourself. If you really think about it, it's everybody but you. I think more specifically, whenever God was talking to us and instructing us in this and loving our neighbor, I believe it encompasses all the people that God has placed around your life. You know, but it's not only those people who, are, who we work with, which it is. It's not only the people who live next door to us, it is. It's those people that look like us, talk like us, dress like us, on the same social plane as us as well as those who are not on the same social plane, the people who don't dress like us, same the people who don't talk like us, and the people who don't dress like us either. Not only does it, not only does it in, include the healthy, but also even the unhealthy. It includes the, it includes the lost as well as the saved. It, 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 our neighbor, to, to love our neighbor, um, our neighbor are those who are the outcast, the, the imprisoned, the downtrodden, 
the less fortunate, all of these are our neighbor. And we are to exercise love towards them in a way that looks like what God did towards us, an unconditional, sacrificial love towards one another. If God has loved us in such a way, we too should love others in the way, that way as well. We are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. So now the big question is, not only who our neighbor is, but what do you mean by love? What do you mean by love? I will tell you, in, in a society, in a culture today, where the definition of love has become so, um, so relative, you can make it say whatever you want it to say. You can make it mean whatever you want it to mean. And in many different ways, we are instructed to love someone, this derogatory to the actual definition of love. Now, we, as we said earlier in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, who is love? Who is? If God is love, then whose definition do you think is appropriate to use in our world? God's. Yeah, it's God's definition of what love truly is. Is. Now we're gonna we're gonna to we're gonna seek to answer a few of those and maybe rebut a couple of those things that are that are thrown that are thrown around in society. But you know, love is something that has a definition. Words mean something. And whenever God calls us to love our neighbor, we need to know exactly what he's talking about and what he means by that. So how can we truly love our neighbor? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 19. Now, this is a study that I did some time ago. I just and I have come back to revisit it because what we are called to do not only in the time of Christmas but since we observe the the love that God has manifested towards us and that he sent his son Jesus Christ I believe this is a great place to start in how we can love our neighbors especially during this time as we celebrate how God manifested his love may we do the same thing in loving our neighbor so the first thing that we're going to talk about today, starting in verse 9, so Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 9, we are going to finish the statement, I can love my neighbors by point one, starting in verse 9. Starting in verse 9, it says, Whenever you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, and you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And what we just read, who is the neighbor? Who, who is the neighbor in this verse? The poor. And the stranger, right? So we have, an we have an identification of who he's specifically talking about in this verse, the poor and the stranger. Now what he has done here is he has instructed them that in order to love your neighbor, you can love your neighbor by one, by making provisions for the needy. Notice the wording here, making provisions for the needy. So what he has been instructed to do, if you're the owner of the vineyard, you're instructed not to reap the corners of your field. Now, do you have grapes in the corner of your field? Yes, you have grapes in the corner of your field, but you're told to leave those alone. Don't reap that harvest. And also, don't glean your vineyards. Now, gleaning is not necessarily a word that we use in today's culture, but gleanings are talking about the, the grapes that may fall on the ground. Leave those. If you miss one, then don't go back and pick it. You know, obviously, if you go through a field and you're picking grapes, if you send somebody else through, they're going to find some grapes that you probably missed. 
I mean, there's a lot of grapes on a vine. You know, it can be hidden behind leaves or tucked in, tucked in a little bit deeper. But he, said, but he tells the owner of the vineyard, do not do that. Do not glean your vineyards, but leave it there. Do not pick anything up off the ground, and do not, do not make a second round and pick those things off. But leave them for who? The poor and a stranger of your land. Now, in doing this, the poor had the opportunity to go and to go into these fields after the, after the vineyard had been, ha- been harvested and to go pick up all the grapes that they possibly could. They could harvest the corners for themselves or they could actually use that and sell it to also provide for other means. But this was a means of providing a, um, uh, providing a way for the needy to come and provide their own needs. Now, notice I want you to understand this is not a command to harvest the grapes and then give it to them is it? No, this is an opportunity for the poor to come and work to provide for their own needs. That is a good thing to do. You give them an opportunity. So you're making provisions for the needy and not just giving it away for free. They have an opportunity to come and work with their hands and to, uh, and to make, a, make a harvest and to provide for themselves and their families, whether they take it and they use it for food or they take it and sell it to provide for other needs. So how can we love our neighbor? Well, we can also provide, um, make provisions for the needy to, um, to provide for themselves. Now, uh, now we, we talked about this in our Truth Project um, worldview world view, view tour, and I shared some times where I was actually the beneficiary of the gleanings from other contractors. Whenever you're starting off in, in construction, you know, I started off as a, as a handyman, I was just taking, taking floor jobs, just any small thing that I possibly could get to start building my, building my business up. And I had friends who were contractors who had been in, the, been in the work a lot longer than me, so they were more well-established and they had a bigger crew. And to take some of these smaller jobs would have cost them more money than it was worth for them to even fool with it. Well, guess, guess whose number they gave whenever they would get a phone call like that? Mine. And because they, were, they, because they weren't trying to take everything in, they weren't trying to hire me to make money off of me, but they were just giving that as an opportunity for me to go work in order to provide a living for my family. It was a gleanings. Then over the years, as I began to grow, I began getting those phone calls that, um, from those jobs that I didn't want to have anything to do with or it was just too small for me to worry about, and I was able to pass that off to some of the people who used to work for me, and they were able to get some of my gleanings. So that's how it really is intended to work, is that we make provisions for those to make a living for themselves. So how can you love your neighbor? To make provisions for the needy and those who are strangers in the land, to make the provisions. Next we see in verses 9, excuse me, verses 11. Now this is pretty self-explanatory, and if you need a whole lot of explanation on this, um, see me after class. But this is, a, this is something that we won't spend a whole lot of time on because there's not a lot to explain here. But in verse 11, it says, You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. Well, you can, you, know, you can love your neighbor by practicing integrity in all of your relationships. Do not lie, do not cheat, do not steal in your relationships. Now, this kind of involves a mindset and a way of thinking that you... <clears throat> what you need to get into is, is, is that you don't want to lack integrity. This encompasses the lying, the cheating, and the stealing in your, de- in your dealings, in your business, and however you do things. There's, there's opportunities where you can take advantage of people. 
And you can cheat people out of different things, but you don't want to do that. You want to make sure that you are loving to your neighbor and that you practice integrity in all of your relationships. If you lack integrity, then you have a lack for love for that person. If you're willing to lie, cheat, and steal from the person in your dealings or in your relationships, and you're saying that I love myself more than another person, and you show that when you lie, cheat, or steal from them. Would you agree? So obviously, one way that you can love your neighbor is to abstain from taking advantage of someone else. Even when you have the opportunity, even when you will never get caught, you can do that. So, and so how can you love your neighbor? Well, live and practice integrity in all of your relationships. Next, in verse 12, and you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. This involves refraining to invoke God's name on anyone. You know, this is more than just taking God's name in vain. This is actually using God's name for your benefit. Trust me, I'm a Christian. You know, I've, I've run into several sales people in different, in different areas, and they find out that I'm a pastor, and all of a sudden, the, a, a, a switch flips. Okay, and, you know, they're the greatest Christian. They're telling me about their prayer, their prayer meetings and all this. And it hadn't been mentioned before, but as soon as they know, oh, this is something that I can hone in on. And, and, and salespeople are good at that. They try to find things that are in common. But I also do feel like it's at one or times or two that I was kind of being taken advantage of in that circumstance because I'd ask them where they go to church, and then they would give me a name. Well, who's the pastor? They couldn't tell me the name. So I kind of feel like they were kind of feeding me something. But however, I'm not accusing anybody, but the thing about it is, is we don't use God's name as a platform to build a platform for ourselves. We don't, we don't take advantage of people by using God's name in order to manipulate someone else to get what we want. This is us profaning the name of God in order to manipulate someone else in order to get what we want as opposed to being honest and truthful up front. A lot of this is what you will see is you'll see this with the prosperity gospel preachers. They rake money in. And how do they do that? They do that by lying to you and says, if you will send me this money, God is going to bless you. That is a way that they invoke God's name um, in a wrong way and to swear by God's name falsely because nowhere in the word of God does it say that you are guaranteed a blessing if you give this person a thousand dollars. You know, it just doesn't, it's, that's not the way it works. So be careful when it comes to that. So it's also not very loving to lie to your neighbor, swearing by God's name falsely. So how can you love your neighbor? <laughs> Don't do that, right? Next we have in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 13. You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. Now we talked about this a little bit. You shall not cheat your neighbor or rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you until morning. So you can love your neighbor by keeping your commitments. Now, a lot of times we make promises that inevitably can't be kept, and our intentions at the time of making the promise were good, and some of those things are un understandable. Maybe some things have happened between that time and you're not able to fulfill your commitment. You, you at least owe it to that person to go and talk to that person and, and give an explanation 
and at least say you're sorry. Sometimes that is the case, but we're not talking about that instance. We're talking about a willful time where you made a commitment to someone and you fail to meet it even though you had the means to do so. So what we read here, it says, you shall not cheat your neighbor. It's an intentional cheating of your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you until the morning. See, what would happen is they would get a daily wage whenever they would work. Whenever the sun went down, that's when they got their paycheck. And a lot of times they would take that money or whatever the earnings they got, and they would use that to provide for their, provide for their family for that day. They would give their daily, their daily pay for their daily bread for their daily lives. And that's the way they would operate. And for an owner or a vineyard owner or a business owner in that time, to withhold that money from that person for that evening is not fair. You're cheating and you're robbing that person because you're not fulfilling the commitment that you made. Now, obviously, in today's world, things are a little bit different. We get paid on the 1st or the 30th or the 1st and 15th every other Friday. And it would be like your boss coming to you and saying, and it's payday and you got your hand open waiting for your paycheck. And he says, well, we're not, you're not getting paychecks this week. We're going to wait till next Friday and we're going to hold it over and do it that way. How many of you would be happy with that? No, it's not right. It's not very loving of your boss to do that to you. He's to fulfill his commitments. You know, we must treat our neighbor justly and equitably. We must fulfill our commitments to one another. And, and especially in this illustration to, um, to employer-employee, we need to pay a fair wage and we need to do it promptly. We need to pay a fair wage and do something rightly. So whenever you, so, so say you did have an opportunity to provide, to make provisions for a poor or needy person and give them work in order to earn some money or whatever they're wanting, and you give that opportunity to them. Whenever they complete that job, you want to exercise good integrity and you want to keep your commitments and pay them and give them what they worked for. Not to hold it over their head or take advantage, but pay them not only um, for doing the work, but pay them a just wage, what the job is actually worth. Don't take advantage. Be, be, uh, be honorable in your dealings. So whenever you, com- whenever you keep your commitments to one another, you are loving your neighbor. No one can grow rich by taking advantage of another person and then claim that you love them. Right? Would you agree with that? Yes. Next, verse 14 You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God, I am the Lord. Now, to curse the deaf doesn't make a whole lot of sense because they can't hear you anyway, (laughs) right? The thing is, don't do that because it's rude, (laughs) it's sinful, it's not nice. Don't put a stumbling block before the blind. We can understand how that would cause some trouble here. So don't do that. Don't curse the deaf. Don't put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall, you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Now in, now, in doing what we see here is a command not to curse and a not to put a stumbling block here. So I would, I would, I would assume that the, the, the affirmative command would be to help the deaf, help the blind. Don't be a problem for them. Actually provide for their needs as you would provide for the poor and the stranger of the land. Now, loving your neighbor in this instance would be showing care for the less fortunate. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying go tell the blind person, the vineyard is three miles down the road on the right, go and get your grapes. This is a little bit different scenario, would you agree? They would not have the ability to go to your crop and pick the ones off the ground because they just can't see them. The deaf person probably could do that. 
but the, but the blind person could not do that. So this is an understanding that we should uh, show care if our neighbors are less fortunate than we are and offer assistance to them and help them do what, uh, help them to, uh, to make a living and to do what they're, uh, and to help them with their livelihood. This has to do with the proper assistance and proper provision for the handicapped. You know, it can extend, you know, to also not making fun of someone. Obviously, that's what we see here, not, not, not causing trouble for them, but actually take them in and embrace them and help them along the way. Now, if you, if you read the Word of God very much, you will find out that God has a heart for the less fortunate. He has a heart for the poor. He has a heart for those who are in prison. He has heart for those who can't fend for themselves. And therein we see a, a commandment here not to make it hard on them, but also I believe what we find in Scripture over as a whole, as a whole of Scripture that we are to take them in to, and to take care of the ones who may be less fortunate than we are. One, this does show that God cares about the less fortunate and those who may have disabilities and those who, have, who are less fortunate than we are, we are to step up and to take care of them. This shows, one, that they have value to Him. I think it's very important for us to really make note of and to understand is that God loves all people, not, the, not only if they're physically whole or mentally whole or, emission, or emotionally whole. God loves everyone and every single mankind bears the very image of God and he loves that person and he wants us to, to make provisions for them and to take care of them even if they are less fortunate. Now, I find this very important to say because we are now giving women the options to abort and terminate pregnancies when they find out that that child is less fortunate. They have Down syndrome. They give abortion as an option. And coerced to have an abortion whenever a child may be mentally ill or have a physical handicap. I believe God is very clearly staying here. Do not put a stumbling block in front of those babies, those children, because they all are inherently valuable because they bear the very image of God. And we are not being very loving to our neighbors in the womb when we allow that stuff to go on. It's just not the way as God has intended for it that we love our neighbors when we provide and show care for those who are defenseless and less fortunate than we are. Next. We love our neighbor when we treat all as equal to all others. When we don't show favoritism in anything that we do. In verse 15 it says, you shall do, it says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. We should treat all equal to me and to all others. There should be a level playing field when it comes to the judgments that we make on one another. Everyone is to be, be judged and to be viewed as equal worth. And note here, neither the poor nor the rich are to be preferred okay, just because they are poor or they are rich in our judgments. Now, let's back up a little bit. Let's go back to this verse. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor give nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. How many of you, that, does, that rob, does that rub you the wrong way? 
you shall not judge your neighbor. In righteousness, you shall not judge your neighbor. Let me ask you a question here. Is God saying, do not judge? How many of you even said it yourselves? The Bible says don't judge. Anybody said that? Come on. I'm not the only one that believed that at one point. <laughs> okay. I know we've all heard it. Because you notice whenever it comes to a corrective action on someone, either someone will speak out in their defense or the person will speak out in their own defense. The Bible says you're not to judge. Right? Yeah, we've heard this before. But does the Bible really tell us not to judge? No, the Bible has never said that. As, as a matter of fact, we are told here, in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. This is not a prohibition against making judgments. This is a prescription on how to judge. You do it righteously. Judge not lest you be judged yourselves. By the same standard that you judge others will be the same standard that they will judge you. Right? So it's not saying that you don't judge others. He says, so what you need to do is get the log out of your own eye. That way you can better help your brother get the splinter out of his. Now how would you understand and know that your brother had a splinter in his eye? You've got to make a judgment, right? He's saying, but remove the log out of your eye first so you're not judging hypocritically. Jesus himself said, don't judge by mere appearances alone, but judge with a righteous judgment. You're going to make judgments. There's no way to get around it. You will make judgments at least a thousand every single day, and those judgments will obviously help you stay alive. But you notice whenever someone makes a judgment and it's a correction, that's when they get offended. Right? Right. And they say, well, you ought not judge. The Bible says don't judge. But what happens whenever you either pay a compliment or receive a compliment? You did a really good job today. Well done. By the way, that blouse looks lovely on you. How many of you are going to say, the Bible says don't judge? How many of you would be doing that? But no, they actually had to make a judge. They judged you. They judged your performance and said you did a good thing. So it's not a matter of if we judge, it's are your judgments righteous? Are they correct? That's the difference. And we are called here to not favor the poor or the rich in our judgments, but that our judgments are righteous, okay? That they are true and good and correct um, in, the judge, in the judgments that we make. Now, don't misunderstand me. We as Christians, we don't condemn people Okay, that, those, those, those words have been interchanged way too often. Okay, you know, that person's being too judgy on me, and they may be condescending in, 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 um, uh, in, in that there, but that's, that's not what we mean by making judgments, okay? You've got to make judgments. And you'd be very wise if you see thugs coming out of the aisle to pass judgment for your safety. Okay, you may be judging them wrong, but you may need to understand this might be for your safety um, in, in doing that. So, um, so that's, that's, what, that's what it means here, is that you can love your neighbor when you rightfully pass judgment on them. You, you put the scales, you put the scales out, you blindfold like Lady, Lady Liberty does, and you make the decision based on what is right and true and good before you judge your neighbor. Make sense? All right, next. So treating all others as equal to me and all others in verse, where are we? Verse 16. In verse 16, you shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. This is something we need to have an understanding. This is also encompassing don't lie 
it is telling us to that, but it's also going a little bit further as far as airing someone else's dirty laundry, character assassination, talking ill of someone, gossiping about maybe something bad that is going on in someone else's life. We don't do that. It's not a very loving thing to do. I mean, many, I mean, I'm sure that a lot of us have experienced times where people gossiped about us, maybe spoke things that were neg negatively true or not true. Either way, that's not what we as Christians are called to do. You know, we don't, we don't speak ill of, any, of, of anyone in, in a sense to tear down their life and destroy their character. No, we as Christians, we as God's people, we extend love by trying to build people up as opposed to tearing people down. So we don't want to use our words in a way that will speak against the life of our neighbor. Love is truthful. Don't get me wrong. We're, we're going to address that um, um, very quickly. You know, love is truthful, but it seeks to focus on the good of others as opposed to spreading the negative. Love never needlessly brings harm to a neighbor, and it rules out any form of character assassination. Next, we'll go through these pretty quickly from here on out. Rejecting hateful thoughts towards your neighbor. That's something we need to make sure we put out of our mind. Um, in verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. Hatred is the opposite of love. So if you hate your neighbor, obviously you're not loving your neighbor. Hateful thoughts are dangerous. Why are hateful thoughts dangerous? Because hateful thoughts tend to lead to what? Hateful actions. It's very important that we, we rid our minds of hateful thoughts towards our neighbor, regardless of the conduct that they are exuding or, or exemplifying against you. We don't, we don't regard hateful thoughts in our mind. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Because what happens? Yes, we may be offended. Yes, we may be hurt by, by our neighbor or by a, by a family friend or, or a co-worker or anything. But what happens whenever we regard that hate in our hearts? We sit there, we milk it, we nurture it, we feed it, and it festers, and we become bitter and, and mean and nasty and ugly. And it's just a really bad thing that causes you harm as opposed to them. You know, bitterness is what people say that, um, and, and holding a grudge and unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping it kills the other guy. All right? So don't regard um, a hateful heart towards your neighbor. Obviously, obviously, that's not loving. And in 1 John 3, 15, it says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. <coughs> and so that's something that we want to refrain from doing and reject those hateful thoughts if we're going to be loving to our neighbor. Next, this is a, another big one, especially in today's world. <clears throat> we must rebuke someone when they are wrong. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. Now, this kind of goes along with making righteous judgments, isn't it? In order to correct them and, re and rebuke your neighbor, you must first make the judgment that they are, what they are doing is wrong and sinful. And in making that, you, in making sure it's a righteous judgment, you have a responsibility and an obligation to God and as well as your neighbor to bring correction to them. Does that make sense? Yes, we have a responsibility to that person for their benefit to correct a sinful action or behavior, rebuking someone whenever they are wrong. This is a forgotten aspect of love. Love truly rebukes wrongdoing. Whenever you see someone who's engaged in, in harmful behavior to themselves and to others, is it a loving thing to just kind of turn an eye or to turn your eye away and ignore the situation? 
Never is that a good situation. Never is that a good idea. No, but if you truly love that person, you will seek to correct that person and reconcile them back to a relationship with Christ to bring them whole again and to, and to give them on the right track. That is a loving action that we, would, that we would do if we truly love our neighbor. Loving someone puts us in a position where we're obligated to correct wrongdoing. And the purpose of rebuke is to keep that, in, keep that individual from suffering sin. And obviously in our culture, we've become overly sensitive to correction. We believe that whatever desire that we have in our hearts and whatever we want to do needs to be affirmed in order to be accepted. And that's just not the way this world works. You know, loving does not require affirmation to your behavior. Okay? Love speaks against sinful behavior regardless of who we may think we are or what others are. That's a loving action to do that, is to rebuke. And rebuke would be much easier if we are able to develop a, uh, a more of a spirit to accept rebuke. But we don't like it. One, it is embarrassing. One, it's humiliating. One, it's offensive in a, in a sense. But if we were actually mature enough to actually hear the, correct, to hear the corrective um, rebuking from God's word and accept, okay, I am in the wrong and turn and repent and turn back to Christ and be reconciled to a stronger relationship with God because of it, that's the, that is what the, um, uh, that's what the object of this, this action is, is to rebuke your neighbor and that they will not suffer because of sin. I also want you to understand whenever we don't speak out against it, whenever we don't try to, to reason with our brother or sister in Christ that what they are doing is wrong and is sinful, it says right here, it says, you shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. I think it's a sinful action on our part against God when we do not rebuke our neighbor. Completely and totally unloving. To allow a neighbor, friend, family, co-worker, to continue in a life that is on its path away from Christ. Now, we are here as messengers and ambassadors of Christ to preach the good news and the truth of the Word of God and to boldly do it with love and with grace and with, and with humility before these people, with a heart of compassion and a backbone of steel to stand and say, Brother, I love you so much, but this is, this is not okay. And to correct them that they might turn back to Christ and repent. And last... We'll make this quick. In, Le in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, it says, you, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Don't hold a grudge. Let it go. Be reconciled to your brother or sister. Take care of it. But do not entertain these wrong desires that are there. Um, and that's not on there. Okay. But refuse to entertain the wrong desires that you have to hold a grudge. Deal with grudges. Deal with those thoughts of revenge. Love rules out this. Love is Loving your neighbor is not holding a grudge, but it seeks to reconcile again with your brother or sister in Christ or that person. So we want to have a continual disposition to do good. And I'll close out with this one statement made by Warren Wearsby. He says this, Ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God of God. During this Christmas season and throughout the rest of your life, I think you can go back to Leviticus chapter 19. And I believe we have a very good understanding of what it truly means to love your neighbor. Christ is calling us 
to do so, and our world needs it desperately. Let's stand in for a time of invitation this morning. Father, again, we just thank you for this day. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the message that we have gotten today, God. And Father, I pray that there's someone who needs to do business with you this morning. Father, they'll, they'll do that right now to respond to your word. Father, we pray that that be done. We pray that your name is glorified. We pray that we honor you with our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray.